friends, today we're going to continue our series on 1 John. We're going to be looking at this point today, keeping the faith, a call to keep the faith. I remember standing next to his smirky grey waterways in the city called Venice. And as I was walking past these waterways, I found myself standing before an old public building. It was an old Catholic basilica church. The entrance of the building was However, shocking. It was roped off. To enter inside, to see the artworks, to see the architecture of this old building, I needed to purchase a ticket. Standing still for a moment, a thought simmered in my mind. The legacy of Christ has become a mere tourist attraction in Venice. The space conveyed a depressing message to the world. The church is dead here. The church is dead. Inventing about the dying church to appear, she shared my sorrow. She spoke about a lady who she met at a combined church training event. And this lady said to her, the minister of my church no longer speaks about the gospel. It turns out by exclusively focusing on social justice, her church had forgotten to communicate Christ. The tension of loving others and evangelizing was lost. He had become a glorified community chaplain rather than a preacher who declares Christ crucified. My peers said in effect, it seems like the pastor of this church has lost his faith. And this is a classic example of a dying church. A dying church desires to bring the justice and rest of the kingdom of God through love, which is our calling, yet there is a fatal error in their approach. In a dying church, the verbal proclamation of the gospel is often sidelined, left behind, Forgotten. This causes our noble works of justice to be detached from the source of life altogether. God. God himself. And since our kingdom works fail to talk about the king, our humanism lacks power to save. The church has a serious problem when it loses the spirit and the word of God. But how do we get to this point? How do we get to this point? Well, to answer this question, we need to understand our intellectual heritage. In the 17th and 18th centuries, the age of enlightenment, also known as modernity, was birthed. In this time, there was a mass innovations in all the sciences, theology, the study of God, philosophy, the study of human thought, biology, all the sciences. And due to this significant focus on reason, the intellect, many became skeptical of the supernatural world and the scriptures. This caused a more materialistic faith to be formed. The coming of God's kingdom was no longer seen as a work of God's spirit. It became a work that could be accomplished by ourselves, ourselves. 
mere human hands. And this reshaping of Christianity was a major failure. History teaches us that the churches who held tightly onto the full gospel, the whole Christ, thrived in the Enlightenment period. The churches who changed the core foundations of their faith to fit the new cultural trends began to die. And friends, here is the heartbreaking truth. The church should have known this would happen. In the epistle of 1 John, the author shows how changing the faith tradition to fit cultural trends, and I'm talking about the foundations of the faith tradition, has hurt his fellowship, his church. It turns out that a group of breakaways had tried to reshape the faith. But rather than making the faith primarily materialistic, like those influenced by the Enlightenment period, the breakaways in John's church made it primarily mystical, non-material, to match the culture around them. I sense that John's church was influenced by an early Gnosticism. And the group of Antichrists, as John now calls them, proclaimed, escape from your body to the perfect spiritual world. And since they had left, had this, sorry, let's evacuate earth theology attitude, their gospel started to damage the church, John's church. The church was hurt because the breakaways rejected some of the central beliefs of the church. They rejected that God is restoring the world, the earth. They rejected the fundamental truth that God has become flesh in Jesus. They rejected the resurrection of Christ, the hope of our own physical, earthly resurrection. They rejected the call to love other material human beings. They rejected the call to overcome the material lusts of the flesh. And so to help these fellowship remain gospel resilient to keep the faith in this crisis, we're going to be looking at two points from the passage. We're going to look at the sign of the end times and then the sign of the spirit. The sign of the end times and then the sign of the of the Spirit. Let's look at that first point by looking at verse 18. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. John's church is living in the last hour. But what does John mean by last hour? What does he mean? Well, we need to look at some other scriptures from the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 tells us that Jesus Christ was revealed in these last times. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. The New Testament writers believe that the last hour had already begun. They believe that these last days will be finished when Christ returns. And so the last hour refers to the closing stages of world history. It's a period in the world history between the resurrection of Christ 
and the return of Christ. But still, how do we know that we are actually in the last hour? Well, John tells us that the sign that we are in the end times is that they are, there are antichrists. Antichrists in our churches, globally and locally. Let me read from verse 18 again. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. There are two key marks of the Antichrist here. The first mark is that they break away from the fellowship. We need to remember something from 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Salvation with God means fellowship with each other. When we come to Jesus Christ for salvation, we actually also become his body. And his body is the people of God. Salvation with God means fellowship with his people. And by breaking away from the fellowship, it was a sign that the Antichrists never knew God. Even though they once belonged a part of the fellowship, their breaking away was a sign that they rejected the gospel of Christ, which is creating a universal family. Christianity is not an individualistic faith system. Belonging to God means belonging to his people. And the second mark of the Antichrists is that they denied that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah. To acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, the Antichrists would need to acknowledge not only that he's human, but his ancestry. The possibility of King David having a descendant who will rule the earth forever was inconceivable to these Antichrists who had rejected the idea of God coming down to earth as a man. By denying the incarnation and also, therefore, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the whole gospel, where Jesus is now enthroned as a physical being over all the creation, the Antichrists made themselves enemies of God the Father. They were really serving another Lord, the Antichrist, and also Satan. By rejecting the experience of salvation, fellowship, and the means of their salvation, Jesus Christ, the breakaways proved themselves to be antichrists. Their sinister work was clear evidence that John and his fellowship was living in the last hour. And friends, guess what? We are also living in the last hour. Still to this day, there are antichrists 
wolves in sheep's clothing, double agents who enter our churches claiming to follow Jesus Christ, who create and build relationships of trust, who get promoted to positions of authority and power, and who sneakily disrupt the fellowship and try to tear it down. The most notorious training ground for antichrists in our diocese took place at a college known as St. John's Theological College, Morpeth. A Royal Commission case study on Newcastle Diocese discovered that there were strong links between the institutional culture at St. Luke's College and the perpetuation of child abuse. And since this college produced many sex offenders, many have detached themselves from the Anglican Church as these men committed these abhorrent acts against the most vulnerable in society they proved themselves to serve another Lord, Satan, Satan himself. But while child abuse is one example, there are plenty more examples. Antichrists often infiltrate our ranks to obtain power and control over people, to commit fraud by stealing money from the treasury, no pressure, <laughs> John Scully, our treasurer, to, to manipulate others by playing the victim to fill their own emotional desires, to propagate income by creating new connections for a local business, to preach a gospel that enhances their own wealth and prosperity. These are all marks of the sinister nature of an antichrist but while these antichrists scheme within our systems there is something we can do there is we must be a church who continually preaches and teaches christ with zeal boldness the clear deep practical proclamation of the whole christ cuts like a sword it sharpens the people of christ while it cuts down the enemies of christ when disciples wield the word of god through faithful proclamation of christ people will eventually pick sides Christ or the world who is ruled by Satan. Christ, the eternal king, or Satan, the prince of our world. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Well, let us now explore the second point of this scripture, the sign of the spirit, the true person of Christ. Verse 20, but you, referring to John's church, have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth. John says that his fellowship, those who have remained in light, despite the work of the Antichrists, 
at recent have an anointing. The word for anointing is charisma, and charisma is only found in this verse in the New Testament. And so we need to look to the Old Testament Greek translation, and in this Old Testament Greek translation, we find this word charisma translated. Charisma was associated in the Old Testament with the anointing of oil. In Exodus 29 verse 7, Moses was called to anoint Aaron and his sons with charisma, anointing oil. Aaron and his sons were then set aside for sacred service as priests of Israel. In Samuel 1, chapter 16, 13, we also see an anointing with oil. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Since David was anointed with oil, with the true spirit of the with the spirit of truth, sorry, he was set apart to serve as the king of Israel. And so with this background in view, I believe John is making this profound point. You guys, you, you guys who have remained, have been set apart for God for sacred use because you have been anointed by the Holy One, which means that you have been anointed with the Holy Spirit of God. The fact that you know Christ, that you love Christ, that you serve Christ, is a sign that you are not one with the Antichrists. It's a sign that you know Jesus Christ. That you've heard the original gospel. That you are indeed a special people. And so with this in view that John's people have received the original anointing, the true anointing of God's spirit. John now calls them to keep the faith. Verse 24. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father, and this is what he has promised, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. The heart of true discipleship is keeping a relationship with God. If the fellowship guards the original gospel that they heard in the beginning and resists those trying to lead them astray by another gospel, their relationship with the Father will last forever eternal life is theirs if they remain in Christ if they remain in their anointing by the spirit of God by holding to the true gospel but while this is clear the final verse seems a little odd verse 27 as for you the anointing you receive from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. It seems like John is denying the importance of human teachers here, but this would be to miss the point. 
John is instead reminding the fellowship that they do not need to be taught by another anointing, taught by the Antichrists who claim to have another more miraculous, greater anointing, which is really a counterfeit anointing. John simply wants his church to be confident in their original gospel anointing from God. He just wants them to be taught in the way in which they originally received by Jesus Christ, not by the ways of the world. John wants his fellowship to simply hold to the true gospel, to continue in their relationship with Christ, to remain close to him, to keep the faith. They need to hold to their original anointing and not be taught by anyone else, but be taught simply by that gospel that they first received. And this call to keep the faith by remaining close to Christ, by keeping this anointing of the Holy Spirit, by holding to the true gospel, is not just for John's audience. It's true for us too, because we're still living in the last hour. And we're surrounded by counterfeit gospels as well. Well, friends, while it was not explicitly clear, at the start of this sermon, I highlighted two counterfeit Gospels. The activist Gospel and the quietist Gospel. The activist Gospel is a counterfeit Gospel because it tends to be too materialistic in focus. In this Gospel, the Gospel is demonstrated through political, social and cultural transformation brought about by mere human hands. Those who live by the activist gospel can be identified by what attracts them. They find the activist gospel attractive because it makes a difference in society. It brings immediate results and it can make us popular with the world. However, it lacks the spirit and the word of God. While the quietest gospel is on another extreme, it is a counterfeit gospel because it tends to be too non-materialistic in focus. In this gospel, believing in Christ is a private and personal message that changes individual hearts and is not really concerned with society or politics. The quietest gospel can be identified by these common slogans. The gospel is only about individual salvation and the only role that Christians have in society is evangelism. Now, if the church desires to thrive into the future, despite having all these counterfeit gospels around us in our churches, we need to break them down to reclaim the whole Christ, the whole gospel message. If the activist gospel and the quietest gospel merge together, most of their problems would actually be solved. And the binding ingredient sorry, that will bring these groups together is a renewed understanding of Christ and his mission to live and preach Christ, to bring heaven down to earth now through the preaching and teaching of Christ crucified. If we lived in such a way where people were also exposed to our radical acts of love, 
and the preaching of Christ, we would find gospel balance. And we wouldn't need to fear falling into one of those counterfeit gospels. We'd have balance and we'd go out to the world loving and preaching about the kingdom. And one example of this which has really encouraged me is the Christmas child box ministry that we've all been a part of. What I love about this ministry is that as we put these boxes together, we're not just showing that we love these children who are receiving the boxes. We're also giving these children the opportunity to hear the gospel. The reason why that is is because we, when we send these gospels, the organisation connects children with local pastors and teachers. And these children, when they receive in the gospels, they are also given the message of the gospel when they receive these boxes. Which is a profound thing. Which is a clear example of gospel balance. Gospel balance. Really, heresy is when we overemphasize one aspect of the gospel which is true to the exclusion of many other true aspects of the gospel. We need to keep the gospel balanced. We need to be preachers and people who display radical acts of kindness. And this is one of the ways in which we can challenge these counterfeit gospels as well. If we live like that, holding on to the whole Christ, keeping this gospel balanced, it's a sign that we are holding on to our original anointing of the Spirit of God. It's a sign that we are keeping the faith. And so this is my prayer, friends. Keep the faith. Amen.